0: People are still searching for evidence of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat. Rick Antonson climbed it to experience the fabled mountain for himself.
1: It begs you to, to question it, all sorts of the legends or the histories around it, as well as the politics.
0: The Moorish heritage of southern Spain makes the city of Granada stand out.
2: Imagine, in a society, it leaves a big genetic print Guides from Spain
0: tell us how you can get in touch with 700 years of Muslim rule in Andalusia, in the Islamic architecture at the Alhambra Palace.
3: The courtyard of the lions, I could say it's
0: cosmic balance. And Wade Davis tells us how one mighty river helps define the nation of Colombia. And you can really reach down and touch the origin of a great nation. His explorations showed him how the Andes, the Amazon, and the Caribbean become united by the Rio Magdalena. It's all in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art. And in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, Art for the Traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll explore one of the most famous mountains in the Middle East. Rick Antonsen tells us how he climbed the 17,000-foot-tall Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey, where the views show you Armenia, Iran, and the cradle of civilization. And cruising the length of the Magdalena River in Colombia showed Wade Davis how it serves as the nation's lifeline. Let's start the hour in one of Spain's most alluring cities, in the province of Andalusia. It's an interview we recorded just prior to the start of the COVID shutdowns. Granada, in southern Spain, was the last capital and stronghold of the Moorish rulers of Spain, who swept in from Africa in 7-Eleven and ruled until 1492. Their last palace, the Alhambra, is a memorial to 700 years of Muslim and Moorish rule in the Iberian Peninsula. And today, it's one of the most important and popular sites in all of Spain. We're joined in our studio by two Spanish guides, Javier Menor and Jorge Roman to help plan a visit to Granada and to better understand and enjoy the Moorish heritage of Spain. Javier and Jorge, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for calling us. Can you
0: both uh, kind of just uh, explain where you live and just
3: briefly what you do, Javier? Um, I live in Madrid. Mm -hmm. We go to Granada often, eight times a year, ten times a year. And you just, uh, you take groups there and uh, you actually uh, sort through all of the complexities of getting to the Alhambra, which almost every tourist in southern Spain wants to check out. Yes, and everybody wants the unique experience. Only me, those
0: things don't exist anymore. Okay, so we'll talk about that. And uh, Jorge?
2: Yes, uh, I was born in Malaga, so Granada is a neighbor city from uh, Malaga. But I'm based in Madrid now for quite a few years. And I go, yes, maybe once a month to the Alhambra. So it's All a right. magical, so you know monthly well. experience. Yeah. Now,
0: you know, when you think of a Muslim a Moorish society, civilization in, in southern Spain or in Iberia, a lot of people underestimate Al-Andalus, it, it was actually quite an impressive culture. Javier, can you give us a little sense of what is Al-Andalus? Al-Andalus, um,
3: it was the Muslim kingdom in the Iberian peninsula and uh, it lasted for multiple hundreds of years and granada was the last uh, bastion standing
0: what what did it leave spain after it was gone was was there any positive
3: value of al-andalus um that's debatable but i could say yes in the positive yes uh, muslims transmitters they were the missing link between ancient culture and the modern one because they translated old books to arabic and they passed the knowledge Cordoba, not too far from Granada, was the most fascinating city a thousand years ago. In all of Europe?
0: In all of the world. Whoa, that's quite a statement. I could say so. Yeah, but I mean, really, we know the Dark Age, the quote, Dark Age, 500 years after Rome fell in Europe when people almost lost uh, literacy. There was just, there was pretty much nothing going on compared to other times. But this was a bright time in the Middle East and in Islam. And then uh, in the 700s, I guess, Islam spread across Africa and came into Spain. And with it, it absorbed a lot of the, the, the greatness of, of European civilization and indirectly, during the Dark Ages, gave it back. Mm-hmm. Correct. And uh, the fall
3: of the empire in Spain was the BC Goths.
0: Now, when we have this Moorish invasion, this Muslim invasion of Christian Europe, there is a united effort on Europe to push it back. Jorge, what was that all about?
2: Well, they started up practically immediately after they uh, crossed the entire Iberian Peninsula and got into the southern of France. And it took, uh, as Javier said, uh, many years, centuries to get it all back. But I have to add that in those days, the, the Arabs, they were the more advanced civilization in the known world at the time. Almost eight hundred years, Rick, imagine in a society, it leaves a big genetic print. And to add that, please let me say this. My family name is Arabic, Al Any word in Spanish beginning by A-L, okay, is Arabic. And so it's, I mean, agricultural So a, a, a
0: genetic imprint, that makes sense. They've got yeah. centuries of one society. It mm-hmm. may be pushed out by the Christian Reconquista, the yeah, reconquering movement. Mm-hmm. And of course, 1492, a Spaniard would not think necessarily about Columbus. That's the year they pushed those moors finally back into Africa. Correct. But it left an imprint. So today you know, a 1,000, what, 500 years later, what would you see when you go to Granada that you think, oh, that is thanks to the Moorish civilization?
2: Well, the Alhambra, of course, and also the neighborhood of Albaicin, okay? Which is basically mainly, uh, when you are in the Albaicin, it's like you were in the north of Morocco, It's very identical to any... So that's the the labyrinthine
0: Uh, neighborhood, the whitewashed, it feels like a a Moroccan town right there in Spain, in Granada. It
2: is, it is. And the Arab community over there is really big, okay? They have several mosques and also... A few years ago, they renewed the, the old mosque that they have in the in the top of the uh, yeah. Somebody Alba's told me home. that
0: was the first mosque built in Europe in 500 years. Yeah, that's right, right there that's in right. Granada, yeah. a modern mosque.
2: Yeah, well, they re- modernized the big modernized. thing, and they put it. Yeah, and it was just it's just beautiful, it's magical. But what
0: about the temperament of the people, the passion, the the cuisine? Is is there any
2: flavor left from oh, the old yeah, spices? But not the spices that we you know here in this side of the world. For you, spices means hot. For us, spices means herbs, more aromatic, more than flavory.
0: Okay. Javier, when you go to the Alhambra, this is where you get a feeling of the magnificence of the Moors. Mm-hmm. This was like, this must have been the the Oz, the St. Peter's, the Versailles of the uh, Moorish world, this Alhambra. What is it? Tell us about the palace. Paint a picture and take us through it. Okay, Granada
3: is down in the valley, and the Alhambra Palace is up in the hill. As Muslim rules dictate, the, all the beauty is on the inside. So outside the Alhambra, it's interesting, and you see contrast in buildings and materials. But it's inside when it blooms. When you're not ready to see that, it's mind blowing. Um, you have different sections, the Alcazaba, which is the old fortress, you have the General Eve, which is the gardens, and you have the main palace called the Nazari Palace. And you just walk through one room, one courtyard, one fountain after the
0: other. And it's only a glimpse of the magnificence of the old days. If you have some information or a guide, they can explain to you this was the throne room. Right now you just see the the shell of this throne room, but if you can put in the pillows and the music and the aromas and the, mm-hmm. and, the and the salt in there or whatever, then you get a feel of it. You totally That's the challenge. Get. Mm-hmm. So you look at the courtyard of the lions. What, example, what do you see? And then and then what was it?
3: The courtyard of the lions. I could say it's cosmic balance. It's so proportioned and so peaceful in there, all covered in white marble.
0: And what it's a fountain in the middle. And in, mm-hmm. in this hot, arid world, you have open courtyards within, and that's the focus socially in a lot of cases. I think there's six or eight lions, something like that, different directions.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: And they were all a fountain at
3: one time. Mm-hmm. No, they're still a fountain. Actually, it was restored recently. So now it's gone back to the um, beauty it had. Let me just say, behind the Alhambra, we have the highest mountain in the peninsula. Uh-huh. And the mountain means the snow, and the snow means water. And the Alhambra is the diamond that is shaping in all that water. This is Travel
0: with Rick Steves. We're talking about Granada. We're talking about the Moors. We're talking about the great palace, the Alhambra. We're joined by Javier Menor and Jorge Roman. Jorge, tell us more when you take a group through the Alhambra. What is the highlight for the visitors?
2: Uh, the very first thing that you see to get into the Alhambra is the palace that was built afterwards when, uh, you know, the Catholic monarch was the first emperor. So it's going, like, backwards instead of chronological. It's, is is it's, this It's the, very impressive, the palatal Charles I. Charles I? The,
0: Charles the, the, the first?
2: first of Spain, fifth from Germany. Oh, that's he, it, because he I think two of fifth, so it's Charles I. He had two titles, yeah.
0: Because that is... Renaissance built yeah.
2: on top of this uh, medieval Re- palace. Yeah. And right. it is yeah.
0: beautiful. It's mm-hmm. perf- it's a round, wonderful, yeah. um, mathematically correct mm-hmm. building. But never uh, used. He built it and never came back. That's right. That was it. That's so that's right. odd. You get the Renaissance masterpiece, which is definitely worth checking out. And it has a museum there for the artifacts that remain from the Alhambra. Mm-hmm. But then when you get into this and you want to see the quintessence of Moorish architecture and extravagance. You're going back in
2: time. I mean, you can feel, I'm getting right now telling you the goosebumps. You just... Go back in time. So and step into the these, uh, the
0: grand hall of the ambassadors and look at the ceiling. What are you going to see?
2: Oh, you see all these handcraft, handmade things uh, over there. Just uh, different type of ceilings. It might resemble you like a, a boat upside down in some of the places. And then all those inscriptions from the Quran all over the places. Because and in
0: the in the Muslim faith you don't have images, so you don't have you don't, a, you don't have a statue of no. a prophet. You have a calligraphy
2: uh, version of his
0: name in print.
2: And you said that correctly. It is a calligraphy, although they are you know, current sentences, but it it depends on the calligraphy. You can tell where they are from, and that happens all over the Arabic world.
0: So all over, it is just decorated with little phrases in fancy writing in that Arabic calligraphy, and that is the art of the day, because you couldn't have images. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Javier Menor and Jorge Roman and we're talking about the Alhambra. We're talking about Granada. We're talking about the Moorish civilization. Jorge, I love standing in the other side of the town, across the valley, at a viewpoint, what is it called? Saint Nicholas
2: viewpoint. It's a Nicholas viewpoint. You have also some other points that uh, is out of the touristy, without secret. some tourist crowds. Yeah, but uh, on the
0: opposite side yeah. of in the Albicine, the yeah. labyrinthine Albicine, that's neighborhood yeah. you look over, you see the mountains of the the Sierra Nevada that uh, Javier was talking about. Mm. You see the sun setting, making the stones of the Alhambra
2: glowing. It changes red. the color every second. Every
0: all the lovers are out. You're standing there, having yep. your drink, looking that's at right. this beautiful setting. Yep. You hear the music mm-hmm. some gypsies play music.
3: So tell music. us about the music. Oh, you will always find there's some gypsies play music asking for a coin
0: after that. And the gypsy music there on the uh, the mirror door of uh, St Nicholas It is it's a lot cool. of life. Yes. It's good. You give them a couple of euros and you're it's a concert with this mm-hmm. amazing setting. By the way, you said gypsies. In America, gypsy is, uh, is uh, like not politically correct. Uh, they want to say Roma. But in Roma. Spain, what, what is the situation? Do gypsies call themselves gypsies? or Gitanos,
3: yep. It is the word that they will use among
0: themselves. Yeah. And, and so there's no disrespect? No. Let's finish just with, with one moment that you enjoy as a tour guide when you bring your groups through Granada. What is the, a favorite moment that you look forward to and that resonates with your American visitors? Javier.
3: Dinner in the Albaicín, in front of the Alhambra, and uh, people do not expect that. And in a uh, a Carmen, in one of those? In one of those Carmenes, the country, the the houses across. the country mansion uh, now engulfed in the
0: city
2: where you Mm -hmm. have an
0: outdoor dinner with a view of the Alhambra. You're describing this. Fantastic. Jorge.
2: My favorite moment is following what Javier said, because if you do that first and then the Alhambra, you have a view from the Alhambra from where you were before and
0: you say that's where I had dinner
2: yeah and I've made a memory I'll enjoy it for the rest of my life so sometimes you don't know what's better being in one side or Mm -hmm. another (laughs) do it both ways this is Travel with Rick Steves Jorge
0: Roman Javier Menor gracias gracias thank you Our guides tell us how to maneuver the tourist crowds that are likely to fill the Alhambra when we're all traveling again. In an extra to this week's show, you can hear it at ricksteves.com/radio. Up next, we'll take you from the peak of Mount Ararat in Turkey to the valleys of the Rio Magdalena in South America. It's travel with Rick Steves. It may well be the most fabled mountain in the world. Rick Antonsen climbed to the peak of snow-capped Mount Ararat. With the challenge of getting to the summit, he learned a lot about that complicated corner of the world where Turkey, Armenia, and Iran come together. His book about the experience is called Full Moon Over Noah's Ark. Rick Antonsen joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what it was like to climb the legendary mountain that's believed by many to still hold the remains of Noah's Ark. Rick, thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me by.
0: So describe just Mount Ararat. I mean, it's such a fabled mountain.
1: It's beautiful it's a one-off mountain in that it stands at 17,000 feet alone. Even though it's part of other mountains and they sort of appear to the side and in the distance, Mm -hmm. you are irrevocably claimed by it the moment you look at it. It's it's almost as though it reaches out and wraps something around Ah. you for awe.
0: Yeah. I I can remember driving toward it and it's just, you set your sights on it from hours away.
1: From very far away. You see it. It is not just a landmark, but because of its connotations over the last thousands of years, it is it it Mm -hmm. begs you to to question it, to question all sorts of the legends or the histories around it, as well as the politics.
0: And if there was a massive flood and it almost submerged everything on the planet and one thing stuck up over the high waters, it could be the summit of Mount Ararat, if you were writing a legend or trying to teach a story. And there is that story of the great flood and Christians would know it as the Noah's Ark story, but it's far more than that. Can you give us just a this, this great flood and this Noah's Ark
1: context for us? So I would say two things. One hypothesis that I did a fair amount of research on was that the Bosphorus Strait was at one point blocked by land, and as the last ice age melted and the world seas rose by 300 feet, it broke through and flooded what was then a freshwater black sea and made it a a salt water, which it is today. Oh, okay, so just so people
0: can remember geographically, the the Bosporus is that long, skinny channel that connects the Mediterranean with the Black Sea, and Istanbul straddles it.
1: Absolutely. And this is
0: where Asia and Europe come together. And, True. And that used to be solid land, and that could have meant that
1: the salty Mediterranean was higher than the Black Sea. And then as the Black Sea flooded, it was rising at six feet wow. a day, they say. Wow. It was like three or four or more, Niagara Falls by the hour. So if that happened, people were rushing away from it. They were rushing away in boats, they were rushing away with their animals, and then for 2,000 years there was oral history. Now, that is one hypothesis, but it lends the credence to why people felt that something like Mount Ararat on the horizon would have been a refuge where people would have gone. So having said that part of it, the other is that the Epic of Gilgamesh which was among the first writing to be committed to clay, predates the Hebrew texts in the Christian Bible by 1,500 years, predates the Koran, which has a Noah, N-U-H, story in it. So the mm. the story of a local flood, mm. which would have encompassed, it's like living in, in any place, Edmonds or Kelowna or Paris, and never having gone 20 miles either side of where you live, if there was a massive flood, it would have been the world as you know it. So the story took on legend when it was written, perhaps based on factual occurrences, but when it was written in the Hebrew text, the name was Noah, which is different than it was in the Gilgamesh text.
0: Just to put the chronology straight, uh, Rick, there was a historic Black Sea flood, and that's what, about 5000 B.C. or something?
1: Well, it actually could have been around end of the last ice age, which would have been about 10,000, Thousand years, ten B. C. thousand
0: years BC. What do we have as far as artifacts, evidence of anything like that? Is there a great curiosity of finding, like like a lot of people are are looking for the the Holy Grail and so on, you know?
1: So there's a lot of curiosity around the possibility of there being remnants or something left over from a, a wooden ship all these years later, which is hugely unlikely that there would be there. But what happens is that periodically every few years, something pops up where someone claims to have found something. So, like any other historic artifact, there's a a mix of true believers and of charlatans. And there are people who have misused that and orchestrated it for attention, fundraising, whatever. So, there's never been anything that has been found and proven by independent third parties to be scientifically anything related to the art.
0: Never. So, really, what we have in the way of artifacts are ancient accounts of a flood that may have been a legend or a, a twisted story over many generations and so on.
1: Or, or or a a story about something that actually happened, not worldwide, but mm-hmm. in a local, your local world what has flooded. it seemed like worldwide. Seemed people, absolutely yeah. well said. Right. But the other thing is that it's like if I said something to you and you said it to a friend and they said it and we went around the room you know it's never the same story right. by the end. So it gets distorted and that's fair.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Antonsen. He's the author of a book called Full Moon Over Noah's Ark. And uh, Rick's been telling us about his adventure to the summit of Mount Ararat in eastern Turkey, and it's in the middle of lands that seem to be perpetually in conflict. Rick's written other travel memoirs. He's written a book called Walking with Ghosts in Papua New Guinea. He's written a book about Route 66. His website is Antenson.com. Rick, it's fascinating to me how Mount Ararat has this mystique, and and part of it must be because of its location in this troubled and complicated part of the world. How does that impact the people like you who wanted to climb to the top of it?
1: Well, today, I couldn't climb to the top of Mount Ararat, and there have been other portions of history, decades at a time, where it was not allowed because of the the political gyrations that were going on. And right now, because of the Kurdish situation, because it's Kurdish territory, government will not issue permits to hike. We had to wait a couple of months to get a permit to go. We needed a professional guide. It's a, a demanding hike, but it's not mountaineering in the sense of pickaxes and climbing up. But you can't do that today. It's 17,000 feet to the summit. It is. So that's very high. It's a lot of work, and it's difficult finding air.
0: Yeah, but the hardest thing might be just getting permission and clearing all the red tape out of it.
1: Well, and when we were on the mountain, we trekked with a group of Armenians who were climbing at the same time, but not with us. Right. And you could sense the tension between them and the Kurdish or Turkish people that were assisting them. So that politics is very real. So Ararat today is in the country of Turkey. But to Armenians, it's their stolen symbol of nationhood. They think it should be part of... Armenia. The Kurds, who want their own territory, their own country, which they don't have, actually think that it should be part of a Kurdistan, which it's not. So it has been controversial for a long time as to whose custodianship is it within. When the Soviet Union existed and Armenia was part of that, the Russian bear wrapped its arms around the mountain and called it theirs.
0: Rick Antonsen is the author of Full Moon Over Noah's Ark, an odyssey to Mount Arabat and beyond he posts to Twitter at Rick. You can hear his earlier travel with Rick Steves' interview about his grueling hike across a historic trail in Papua New Guinea. We have a link to it in our show archives at ricksteves.com radio. Peter in Chino, California, is on the line to talk with Rick Antonson. Our number is 877-333-7425. Hey, Peter.
5: Rick, my, my question is for you. Um, I was just listening to what you were saying about how... Mount Ararat is such a potent symbol for the Armenians and the Turks and the Kurds and and the various ethnic peoples who live in the region and as you alluded to and I as an Armenian American you know Mount Ararat for myself and my ancestors has always represented home I mean that's what the diaspora always looks to um aside from that my my question is when you were climbing the peak or when you were preparing to climb the peak or after you climbed it, how did the interactions of the various groups like the Armenians and the Turks and the Kurds that you came into contact with um, relate to the peak and to each other? And I, I guess what I'm asking is, was there more of a, of a kind of shared identity that they all look at this peak together and it's something that binds them, or do they see it more um, fractiously where it's they want it for themselves?
1: I like your use of the word fractiously because that captures it. There's not much shared understanding. If there's, There's this is ours, it was yours, it's now blocked off between Turkey and Armenia. I maybe should begin by saying that I was somewhat embarrassed by how little I knew about the Armenian genocide until I was researching this trip and then on the journey and then traveling with Armenians and you could sense a palpable tension between the Kurdish Turks that were not friends with the Armenians but they were there climbing. The Armenians who look out from Yerevan and here is Mount Ararat had to actually travel through another country and down and it was an extra day's travel, they paid more to be on the mountain than I did as a Canadian for my permit. There's lots of d- discrimination. and my is, that, bo- is that because the Turks are in control of who go... Are they the gatekeepers to the mountain? The Turks are the gatekeepers, that's the term. And mm-hmm. they don't necessarily want the Armenians there. And, you know, the, the Armenians used to be, Armenian people, a, a big, big part of the Turkish population. Look, of
0: course, there's, I don't know, 70 million Turks or something like that. And uh, Turkey loves the thought of um, Turkish Armenians and Turkish Kurds. And we can all live together, but it is on Turkey's terms. And uh, the Kurds and the Armenians probably have something in common. As that corner of the world, your neighbor's neighbor is your enemy. Hey, Peter, when you think about the historic Armenia... I know from my travels in eastern Turkey, there's a lot of Armenian sites, most of them depopulated and just, you know, ancient historic sites that you go through like like it's dead. And that's a souvenir of the genocide in a way. And there is a country, Armenia, to the north, but Mount Ararat is embedded in Turkey. If you look at the historic Armenia Does Ararat kind of stand in the middle of that, like presiding over the country? Is it it that integral to what Armenia is historically if you get rid of the difficult modern history between Turkey and Armenia?
5: Absolutely. In fact, before 1915 and the genocide, um, Armenia at one point, the kingdom of Armenia at one point, stretched all the way to what is now Syria, Lebanon, and the eastern Mediterranean, mm-hmm. and it did envelop what is probably the the eastern half of what is now Turkey, and so Mount Adonai would have been really in the kind of bullseye center mm-hmm. of, of ancient Armenia, and so it is, yeah, it is...
0: Even more apart. poignant, even more it is, important. It is more poignant,
5: and, mm-hmm. and it became, I think, even more poignant after the genocide and after, you know, land was taken away and the villages were destroyed and, yeah.
0: Well, I would say anybody who's venturing into eastern Turkey, if you're going that far, to remember Armenia is wide open for tourism and uh, it would give you a wonderful sort of uh, balance of your experience. And when you're in eastern Turkey, you'll find all sorts of sites that are very important to the Armenian culture that are there today, uh, protected as, you know, historic sites, but very sad and tragic uh, from an Armenian point of view. Peter, thanks for your call.
5: Thanks for taking it. Thank, yeah. thank you, Rick.
0: Bye-bye. Bye now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Entonson. His book is Full Moon over Noah's Ark. Rick, we've just got a few minutes left, and I'd like to talk about the hike itself. Um, 17,000 feet. I mean, I live in the shadow of Mount Rainier, and this is thousands of feet taller than Mount Rainier. You need a helmet. You need probably need a guide and some gear, and maybe uh, you'll feel really uh, the thin oxygen when you get up to the top of that. What was it just like climbing Mount Ararat?
1: Well, the the, the first two days as we're making our way, first of all, to base camp and then to Camp 2, it's climbing. It's a steep hike. And so you need to be in shape for that. And any time you can get a meal or sustenance, you just you absorb it. You just can't wait to get that in. You sleep wonderfully. And we actually had built in an extra day because they said you might want to go from base camp to Camp 2 and back down to help acclimatize because of the altitude. When we got to Camp 2, we were kind of fired up. There was five of us. We had a guide. You you need a guide to be on the mountain. And we said, should we go tonight? And the whole goal for me was to climb under a full moon. And there were clouds. And I met a Russian group. They'd come down. They took me into their campsite and fed me this black Russian tea and... One of them spoke English, and he talked to me about having made the ascent, but he wouldn't tell me how good it felt, because he said, "When you go up, it's got to be just your experience." So they were oh. just, just wonderful. And there was a group, maybe about eight or ten of them, and they sang songs and and talked to me. But when we went up that last bit, it's you know, it's in several thousand feet in elevation gain, many hours, and then you get to the snow from the field. last field. Exactly from from what we called Camp Two and you're wearing crampons, and you're stepping slowly, and you, 20 paces, you stop to catch your breath. The last sort of hour is really steep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the difference between seeing tomorrow and not seeing tomorrow is falling off a mountain, and and you're very much aware that you could start to slide. So it was, slipped. So there was. was some treachery. There was Were you a, an, an element of, of danger. No, but uh, there was a Swiss group that was on the mountain at the same mm-hmm. time, and they roped up. And I think they were more experienced and perhaps a bit more aware. We we were from all over the world, the five of us, and didn't have that that unity that came, I think, to the Swiss. It looks
0: kind of like a Mount Fuji sort of gen... I mean, nothing, not to belittle the hike, 17,000 feet is 17,000 feet, but it looks like you could hike up from any number of angles. Were there people winding their way up the mountain from all sides, or is there like a one little entry point that the Turks monitor and then everybody goes up a prescribed route?
1: You've hit it. We went from the south side there have been a sense in the past from the north side. I think, so the Armenian looking out right. on that, which mm-hmm. is a magnificent view. So we went up from the south side, a bit more gentle, but there is one way to get to the top. Okay. And when you're on the peak, you're going to be there maybe for five or ten minutes, and then you're going to want to be off. Why so short? The winds are howling. When you stand on the top, you actually look, you're looking over Iran and you're seeing Armenia to your north and you're in Turkey, so that's kind of awesome. Iraq isn't too far to the south, but you can't actually see it. But you're there, the winds, the elements are just wrecking havoc with you, and you you're exposed because you know we're westerners. We're trying to take photographs. You get your hands bare, and there's no just coffee to shop.
0: There's no nothing. toilet. There's, there's, a, there's, there's, <laughs> there's nothing there on the top of the mountain, yeah, uh, and then and, you've got to get it, safely off, which well, is you've got its own challenge. But you've also got the the thin air. Did
1: you feel lightheaded? I felt a little lightheaded. I write about an occurrence that I realize now isn't unique to me, but was startling, and that's that when we were coming down, my vision blurred. And I've got 20-20 vision. I've I've been blessed with good vision all my life. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't distinguish shapes. Two of my fellow trekkers, I could tell a little bit because one was dressed in a red outfit and one in a white and black outfit. But it worried me. I had to stay close to them all my way down. And that's a result of altitude because your eyes aren't getting the oxygen that they need to. But there are other times when you're just wondering, what am I doing here? And where is the next gulp of air going to come from? And you would go several paces and then stop just so your body could regroup and give you the confidence to follow on.
0: Rick, one more time just to wrap it up. You've dreamed about this. You've spent so much energy getting there. You've learned so much. What goes through your mind? What did you think on the top of Mount Ararat?
1: There's a sense of I made it because other than my wife and two sons, all I'd said to anyone, anyone, was that I was going to go on a walkabout on Mount Ararat. I didn't want to say out loud I joined an expedition to the summit. I didn't want to jinx it by trying to foreshadow. So that sense of, oh my goodness, here I am on top of the world. Like nothing, nothing replaces that sense of accomplishment and the... Who am I to have such a wonderful emotion and the, the great good fortune of, of being on top of Mount Ararat? And then you
0: give yourself a big high five and you realize I'm cold, I can hardly <laughs> breathe and I got a long hike <laughs> down.
1: Let's get down. Let's get down.
0: Rick Antonson, thank you so much. Again, thank the book you. Full Moon Over Noah's Ark. Thanks for writing that and sharing.
1: Thank you very much for having me by.
0: an adventure down the Rio Magdalena, the river that made Colombia possible. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves.
3: Ik ben Gusje van Hest uit Nederland and ik reis met Rick Steves. That means I am Gusje van Hest from the Netherlands and I'm traveling with Rick Steves. Ik ben Gusje van Hest uit Nederland and ik reis met Rick Steves.
0: Think of a river in South America, and you'll probably picture the mighty Amazon or the massive Rio Plata at Buenos Aires. But anthropologist Wade Davis, who's had a nearly lifelong relationship with the country of Colombia, thinks of another river. In his book, Magdalena, River of Dreams, he explores how the nation revolves around that river from its source in the rugged mountains of the south all the way to its end in the mysterious wetlands that empty into the Caribbean. Wade joins us now on travel with Rick Steves from his home near Vancouver, British Columbia, to tell us about his lifelong relationship with the country of Colombia and his many adventures along the Rio Magdalena Hey, Wade. Well, thanks, Rick, for having me. Yeah, you know, there are so many countries to love in South America, but I find there's something about Colombia that people just have an affinity for. My my son fell in love with Colombia, and he lives there now, and he's traveled all over the world, and clearly you love Colombia. What distinguishes Colombia from any other country in in that continent?
4: It's a really good question because, you know, if you ask yourself or you ask people, you know, what do you love about Colombia? Well, you can't say there's a Machu Picchu. You can't say that there's a, an Angkor Wat. Or, or It's something about the overall essence of the people. It's sort of a place of uh, colores y cariño, where magic happens every day. You know, I always say that people say that um, Colombia's gift to Latin American literature was magical realism. But the truth is that Gabriel Garcia Marquez was a practicing journalist all of his life. He was an observer who just wrote about what he saw, but he just happened to live in a land where heaven and earth converge on a regular basis to reveal glimpses of the divine. I mean, it's the most biologically diverse and geographically diverse and in many ways topographically diverse nation on earth. You know, you have the rugged knot of mountains, the Macizo Colombiano at the south of the country, out of which flow so many of the great rivers, the Putumayo, the Cacata, great Amazonian rivers, and the Batia that flows the other way into the Pacific the Cauca, the great arm of the Magdalena, and then Mother Magdalena herself coming out of the mountains Mm. and beginning this 1,200-mile run to the sea. And in many ways, Magdalena is like the Mississippi. It's cousin to the north in the sense that it's a corridor of commerce and also a fountain of culture, the sort of the repository of Colombian uh, literature, poetry, music, and prayer. But, But it's very much a country that made Columbia possible because of the unique geography of the place. People will say that Colombia itself as a nation was a gift of the Rio Magdalena.
0: Mm. And When my son talks about Colombia, he almost speaks of uh, topographical lines uh, referencing the people and the culture. You've got the sea level culture, and you got the middle zone and then the and the high zone and and that would sort of be tracked by the river itself going from its source down to the to the sea but you do have a a dramatic difference in just the personality of the people and the personality of the culture as you gain or lose altitude
4: well it's an incredibly diverse country there's no place in Colombia more than a day removed from every known ecological niche to be found on the planet and so you have sort of five major regions, you know, the vast Amazonian forests that are alone the size of France, and then the great plains, the llanos that run away toward Venezuela, and then the main Andean cordillera, these three arms of the cordillera that come out of the Colombian macizo, and then run away to the Caribbean coastal plain, where it falls away into this vast, miraculous lowland of of cienegas and wetlands the size of the sky, a, a kind of world of water uh, an amphibious life and then on, on the western coast of course you have the great lowland forests of the chocó the pacific forests that were cut off from the amazon by the rise of the andean cordillera and of course the the plants have speciated in so many interesting ways and again you know it's also located in the northwest corner of south america so you have all the andean influences all the Caribbean influences, all the Central American influences, and all, the, all of the uh, Amazonian influences sort of coming together in this great clash of life. And, that, and I think it's an important, because of the drug wars and because of the, uh, the conflict, foreigners have often come to see Colombia as sort of a, a place mired in darkness and nothing could be further from the truth. And I think it's important for all of us to remember that, you know, during all of these years of conflict, uh, fifty years of violence, um, there were never more than two hundred thousand combatants in a nation of fifty million. So the vast majority of Colombians were innocent victims, caught in the vice of of war, and yet, despite all of that, two hundred and twenty thousand dead, seven million internally displaced, the country has maintained civil society and democracy, greened its cities, created millions of acres of national parks, and a system that was already the jewel of south america and sought restitution with indigenous people and i think especially rick for the american audience people have to remember that the wars of columbia would not have lasted a week without the consumption of cocaine in places like the united states and europe wade davis is our guest from his
0: home studio in bowen island bc wade teaches anthropology at the university of british columbia and is the author of more than 20 books he writes about his love of Colombia and the river that defines the country in his book called Magdalena, River of Dreams. Wade tells us more about the misconceptions of the FARC rebels and their roots in Colombia in an extra to today's show. You can hear it at ricksteves.com slash radio. You know, Wade, I've, I write guidebooks to different countries, and I'm always nervous when people from that country read the book because they would be much more intimately connected with their country than what I'm trying to report on. I'm so impressed by the, just basically the embrace of your book, uh, Magdalena, by people who really are cultural icons in Colombia, the the president of the country, leading journalists saying, you know, if you really want to understand Colombia, read this book. You even got to be an honorary citizen of Colombia a couple of years ago. How does somebody, just in general, how do you get to know a country so well that the local creative, you know, forces in that country celebrate you. What, what, what is the trick to getting to know a country well, part, wherever you travel?
4: You know, part of it, you know, all travelers become enchanted with the first country that captures their hearts and gives them license to be free. And, and for me, it was Colombia. and, and the, the strange affair, the love of a boy for a country, its people began very innocently when I was 14 years old in 1968, when my mother told me in Canada that Spanish was the language of the future. And she worked all year uh, as a secretary in an elementary school to allow me to join a small group of schoolboys that a teacher was taking to colombia and at the time when most canadians and americans had never been in a plane the south american destination was terribly exotic and i was very fortunate i was the youngest of the group at 14 by 2 years and i was billeted not with the affluent families in the where the kids spent a sort of sweltering summer in the um streets of cali but with a more modest family in the mountains above the the city. And it was a classic Colombian scene, children too numerous to keep track of, an indulgent father, uh, a grandmother who muttered herself on a porch overlooking flowers and fruit trees, and a sister who more than once carried her brother and me home half drunk to a a mother kind beyond words who would stand at the front steps, uh, tapping her foot on the stones as she feigned anger. You know, a lot of the other Canadian lads suffered from what the Colombians call mamitis, or homesickness. And I, by contrast, felt like I had finally found home. Hmm. And I, I returned Wait, wait years- a minute, you
0: finally found home in a country that wasn't your country?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, How? What uh, was that like? I mean, what do you mean? You know, I kind of grew up in Colombia, and, and I speak Spanish like a— uh, from the streets of Colombia, you know, think of the psychological impact, uh, Rick, of being a pariah nation. You know, the, the former ambassador to Washington, uh, Carolina Barco, former external affairs minister, daughter of a president, famously with strip search at Dulles Airport, simply because she had a Colombian passport. And when she, you know, resisted and offered her diplomatic credentials, she was dismissed with an obscenity from the agent, uh, Bark As if from the mouth of a dog. Well, if that's what happens to the representative of the country in DC, you can imagine how young people uh, feel. And One River came along, as does Magdalena, and just holds a mirror to all that is good in the country. It doesn't shy away from the violence, on the contrary, Mm -hmm. but it explains it with empathy and understanding. Mm. And in that sense, the reason President Santos both made me a a citizen, which was very rare actually in Colombia, and also on his own um, tweeted out, here's a Nobel laureate for peace. Every Colombian must read this book because I think he sees that the book can play a role in a precarious peace process if only by, um, you know, the biggest enemy of peace is pessimism, negativity, uh, the loss of hope. And the book, by showing all that is brilliant and beautiful about Colombia and the people, in a way becomes an antidote to despair. And I think that's why the Colombians... I've embraced it.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Wade Davis. He teaches anthropology at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. He's written about 20 books, books on topics from the Amazon and Colorado rivers to Haitian voodoo, to the British expeditions on Mount Everest. His latest title explores how the Great Magdalena River helps to define today's nation of Columbia. It's called Magdalena, River of Dreams. His website is daviswade.com. So, wait, your book sort of lets the Magdalena be the spine of Colombia in so many ways. We've uh, Let's just take a quick trip through the country along the Rio Magdalena, from
4: the top to the bottom. The Magdalena is born in the Macizo Colombiano, this rugged knot of mountains. And it's really incredible. You cross over these great paramos, which is this unique formation of—it uh, feels almost like a, a moorland of Scotland grafted onto the back of the Andes— and as you drop out of there, there's literally a place where you can reach down with one hand and touch the berth of the Corriada Oriental, which runs up the east of the country all the way to the Venezuelan border. And then you reach to the left and you're touching the Corriada Central, which storms up the middle of the country until falling away in the Caribbean coastal plain of the country. So you're you're coming out of this amazing a mountain massif in this elfin fairy tale land of, you know, walking along an archaic road of ancient stones that falls away like mercury into the cloud forest. And you can really reach down and touch the origin of a great nation.
0: Wait, I'd like to really get to the kind of, when a traveler goes to Colombia, there's Cartagena, There's Bogota, there's Medellin. Uh, Those seem to be the the big three attractions from an urban point of view, and each one is distinct. You, You could go to those three cities and feel like you're in three different countries. How would you characterize the cultural experience in those three great cities of Colombia?
4: Well, Cartagena, of course, was a repository of gold. It was a transshipment point for all the wealth of the Indies coming across the Isthmus of Panama. So it's got great colonial architecture. It's a city of the coast. It's uh, all the the color and wonder of the coast. And, of course, Bogota, the the national capital, you know, at 10,000 feet, cold and misty with shimmering mountains scoring the skyline and verdant fields of of a kind of an upland volcanic paradise. Uh, and then Medellin nestled down in the verdant hills of Antioquia, the city of eternal spring, as they say, the sort of the perfect climate of South America. But there are other cities, Pereira, Manizales, uh, you know, I, I think it's really the geographical features. I mean, the fact that the Amazon of Colombia is the size of France, and unlike that of Ecuador, where, which was compromised 50 years ago uh, by oil development and deforestation, Because of the war, uh, vast areas of Columbia were off limits to industrial development, which is the great hope of the nation, because the nation now can make decisions based on 50 years of science and uh, understanding that wasn't available 50 years ago. So the Amazon of the Columbia, the most beautiful section of the whole Amazon basin, is the size of France. Um, Soaring out of the Caribbean coastal plain east of Cartagena is the highest coastal mountain range on Earth. The Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, which soars to 20,000 feet, and is still homeland to the descendants of the sun priests of the Tirona, the mammals of the Arawakos, the Kogi, the Wiwa, who to this day are ruled by a ritual priesthood, who in a bloodstained continent were never vanquished by the Spanish. And they, they maintain that their prayers and rituals literally uh, maintain the cosmic balance of, of the world. Uh, Or you can go to the forests of the Darien and all the lost islands of approaching Panama, all the way down the Pacific coast of the endless beaches. Or again, you know, into the Llanos, where the grasslands go to the horizon. And all of this is reflected in music. You know, Colombia is said to be the land of a thousand rhythms, but ethnomusicologists have in fact identified a thousand twenty-five. And the fountain of music, the mother of all music, is Cumbia, but the mother of Cumbia is a Rio Magdalena.
0: Give us a, a little bit of insight into how we might travel and enjoy the people that so charmed you.
4: Well, I think that's what we do as travelers. Wherever we go, you know, you know, when you're trying to break down that barrier that exists between yourself and as an outsider and people with whom you seek to live as a guest it's always uh, empathy and love openness a willingness to sleep where you're asked to sleep eat what's put in front of you self-deprecating humor i mean the way this book magdalena came about was sort of sociology is serendipity i would just turn up into a in a community and hang out until i found someone who had something to say that the world needed to hear and that, as hemingway said it was the essence of good storytelling i mean i i I think the most important thing is to travel without fear. I mean, my experience of uh, so many travelers in that kind of cross-cultural moment, wherever that is, Rick, they they get stiff and frightened and fearful, and it just seems odd to me. Uh, but I've been traveling since I was fourteen, so I have a I, you know wherever I am and around the world, you know I can sort of slip into the moment, and, and that's really what it's all about. In Colombia, there's a million ways, you know, a riverfront uh, of fishermen or or a coffee plantation or or offering to help a campesino do their daily chores. I don't know. You know, the whole thing is that, you know… Travelers don't know where you're going. Tourists can't remember where they've been. And so <laughs> yeah. uh, what you want to do is just, you know, be like the sage, uh, eyes wide open to wonder and open to anything. I mean, when I when I first was a kid in Columbia, on Sundays, for example, Rick, which is the day of families, the paseos, everybody's on the move, having wonderful barbecues and everything, I would put on my fanciest clothes, which weren't very fancy, I trust me, and I would just spin my compass to say... Mm. what direction to walk in. And I would just walk in that direction for six hours to see what happened. This is Travel with Rick Steves. The the first foreign
0: country Wade Davis ever traveled to was Colombia, and it continues to hold a special place for him. He travels the length of Colombia on the Magdalena River and explores how the river makes that country one of Latin America's most diverse. That's all in his book, Magdalena, River of Dreams. We have links to his website and his books with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. You know, I was just in Medellin last uh, Christmas, and the light festivals, everybody was out, and it was such a graceful, sweet, it was an adorable scene with families, multi-generations, celebrating a simple thing of just a, a riverside lined with lights like one big long
4: park. I mean, the word for Colombia is cariño. You know, it's funny. My friend Sandra, who was a big part of writing, uh, working on the book with me, a major character in the book, um, you know, she she always says, I sort of make up poetic phrases in Spanish that people really appreciate. But one of them is, you know, Colombia is un país de colores y cariño. You know, those, I always say it's not a country of violence and war and drugs. It's, it's a place of... Um, of colors and love. And that's what it is. I mean, it's the warmth of the people that just envelops a young traveler like a protective cloak tailor-made and for it's wonder. Just,
0: it's just a, a shame that so many people still think that there's a, a danger element because of its image from a, the drug cartel past, which is so long gone now, and you just got to remember it. It's a fascinating country, and it's if 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 you don't get out and visit countries in person, you, there's no way you can appreciate the complexity of the, the weave of, of the nature and the culture and the history and the love. I think that clearly comes across in your passion for Columbia and in your book, Magdalena, River of Dreams. Wade Davis, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your appreciation of and love for Columbia.
4: Thanks, Rick, very much.
5: Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, the Mora Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amara Kipnikone, affiliate support from Sheila Gurzoff. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can find out more about our guests, search the show archives, and listen again anytime you like. Look on our website, ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.